All right. Good morning, everybody. Hey, welcome to uh, Christ the King. My name is Kirk, and I'm the pastor here. If I don't know you, um, I want to get to know you. So hang around afterwards, and let's uh, and let's chat for a moment. Um, hey, let's begin our time uh, by just giving thanks to the Lord um, for uh, for His persistence and for His patience, um, for His willingness to meet with His people, um, and for China Gowan for tackling the first 18 verses of Genesis 25 this morning. So um, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for uh, your goodness. We confess our need um, for you, as we have sang already uh, this morning. Um, We love you, and we are grateful for your rescue of us through Christ. Our prayer uh, this morning is is really simple, but it requires you to work, Um, and that is that we would lean into your word and that our sin would be exposed. It would be given a passion and a desire in all things for your glory, um, and our good as you define it. And so um, transform our hearts by the power of the gospel and the work of your spirit as Jesus is held out and up before us um, from this text this morning. Again, we love you and we're grateful for your love for us. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Yeah, open up or turn on to um, Genesis chapter 25. We are going to be in the first 18 verses this morning. Um, that is... Um, That is the death of Abraham. Um, So I mentioned already, as many of you know, that I am the pastor here. And uh, because that is true, um, I have the incredible opportunity um, to chat with many of you during the week about a number of different topics. Right? We talk about um, life and we talk about God. We talk about his word and the application of the gospel in our relationships Right. Among other areas. Right. We could continue to explore the ways that the gospel um, shapes and informs our lives, our relationships, the way that we work, um, the way that we go to class and deal with conflict. These are um, sweet conversations that I enjoy immensely. One of um, the threads that I've noticed over the years of gospel ministry and gospel intentionality by way of conversation um, is that without breaking any type of confidentiality, there is a real struggle to trust God. This is oftentimes brought out um, in conversation as we talk about struggling with sin, right, and and, and loving the Lord and loving his word and seeking to live um, in obedience to what he has to say um, to us and desires for our lives and from our lives as his people. I've thought of a number of ways that this question oftentimes manifests itself. Maybe you've asked some of these questions. One um, would be this. This is, a, this is a popular one, right? How do I know that um, God's word is reliable? How do I know that I can, that I can trust God's word, right? The sufficiency of the cross and faith for forgiveness from sin. You don't know what my background looks like, right? You don't know what my life looks like. How can I trust God's word that indeed Christ's substitutionary work is sufficient right, to produce reconciliation and forgiveness? God's word speaking towards specific issues such as relational reconciliation to personal growth and, and discipline from one end of the spectrum to the other, broad in topic but linked by this struggle. To trust, right? To, to, to trust in the trustworthiness of God's word, its validity, right? Its sufficiency and its supremacy. Is God's word authoritative? 
Or does God's word enough? And will his promises come to pass in my life and in the world? And I think that these are, these are questions that many have or perhaps are considering. As we come to Genesis chapter 25, we see Moses pointing the people of God toward the trust that Abraham possessed concerning the reliability of God's word and work. In fact, I would go as far as to say uh, that, um, that, that we see in, in many ways uh, Moses directing us towards the following conclusion through these 18 verses detailing the passing of Abraham. Right, that, the, that the word of God serving as our supreme source of confidence in life and death, is from beginning to end, get this, this is going to be really important, a testimony of God's goodness, generosity, and trustworthiness. Let me say that that one more time, that, that the Word of God, serving as our supreme source of confidence in life and death, is from beginning and end a testimony of God's goodness, generosity, and trustworthiness. This is where we're going to spend a majority of our time this morning, coming around this idea of testimony and story and legacy that is incredibly practical to the lives of each one of us. It's helpful to keep in mind that while we observe this testimony of God here within the testimony of Abraham, that this is not to be ultimately exclusive. It's not exclusive to Abraham, but is to extend out as a point of emphasis in the lives of all believers. And so while our immediate observation from Genesis chapter 25 relates to Abraham's life, Telling the story of who God is, it does not stop with Abraham. But it continues on through, through other people, including you and, and I. We're going to talk a lot about testimony. And one thing that we're going to find is that our testimony ultimately is centered on the person and work of Jesus. That it's all about who God is and what he has done. We see through the beginning and end of Genesis 25 that the life of Abraham is a testimony to the reliability of God's word. This is where we're going to begin our journey. Right? That, the, that the, the life of Abraham is a testimony to the reliability of God's word. This is the case that is being made as we read Moses' recording. As he looks back on Abraham's death, and his legacy, the life of this major role player over not only the last 13 chapters, but from a New Testament perspective, the entire story of redemption. Okay, within the first four verses, Moses provides detailed insight into events having taken place since the death of Sarah. In fact, it's here that we find Abraham having remarried. Not only that, but he has fathered more children. We see their names listed in verse 2 and 3, followed by their children's names listed in verses 3 and 4. Now, I will be, this year, shocking as this might be, 33 years old. 
I'm horrible with age. <laughs> Not in that, like, I don't enjoy growing old. Like, I really do. I just don't realize how quickly it happens, right? The years pass by super, super quickly. That's not the point. The point is this, that I'm 33, um, and three months ago, Courtney and I added a second child to our home. Now, we have great children, little, sinning, wonderful children. At the same time, there are days when it feels like keeping everyone alive is all that we can do. I can't imagine juggling that responsibility at well over a century old in Abraham's case. Yet here we are. Through this genealogy, we see the continued growth of Abraham's family, specifically God working to bring about the fulfillment of his word. So as a point of review, here's what I want us to do. I want us to go back to God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Now, we are a long way from Genesis chapter 12. And as long as it's taken you and I to journey from Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis 25 over the course of this past year, it took much longer for Abraham to get there. Years and, and years and, and years have passed. And so let's go back and let's, and let's consider again what we saw to the calling of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Moses records for us the events and they read as follows. Now the Lord said to Abram, remember there was a transition over the course of the years to Abram, to, to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Right? You're leaving home. You're venturing out. God is, is calling Abram out. Under the banner of the following promise. Verse 2. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth shall what? Shall be blessed. From this passage, we are to see way more than a handful of new names and a funeral. On a much broader level, God is presenting an an argument as to why his word can be trusted. Now remember the struggle that we talked about in the beginning, right? Maybe a struggle that you are all too familiar with. Maybe as you are here this morning, this is a, a, a part of your life. The reliability of God's word, the trustworthiness of God's word. Remember what we're talking about here, how Abraham's life serves as a testimony to the trustworthiness. Of God, and as a result, the trustworthiness of God's word. These are interconnected, aren't they? I mean, we know how this works. We know how this feels. Like you likely know um, individuals who you would affirm. Yes, this is indeed a, a trustworthy person because oftentimes, right, his his word is is true, right? He makes certain commitments, or she makes certain commitments, and she follows through. And as a result, I can trust her because her word has proven trustworthy. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the trustworthy nature of God as a result of the trustworthy nature of his word. As we revisit Genesis chapter 12, we remember the promise of God in light of the end of this patriarch's life. Abraham has seen it. 
Okay, Abraham has, has witnessed it. He is undoubtedly, in these final days, in these final moments, able to replay these promises from all of these years prior. As his life ebbs to a close with a smile on his face. Why? Well, because he's able to recount God's wonderful work to accomplish his will at times in spite of what appears to be Abraham's best efforts to derail it. This is a a major benefit of distance from certain events, isn't it? Right? Eternity is before him. Some time has passed and he is able to reflect back. Oftentimes in, in the moment, it's more difficult for us, amen, to, like, to, to understand what God is doing and the way that he is working and the way that he is producing good and bringing about good, even from circumstances and situations that we have oftentimes as a result of sin produced in our own lives. At other times, they're just the consequence of living in a fallen world. Abraham here, as his life is, is drawing to an end, no doubt has his eyes looking back, considering the faithfulness of the Lord, while at the same time looking, looking forward, confident in the promises of God. But let's be clear, the, the quality of his faith has not changed. Right? That is to say that the faith that Abraham possessed in the Lord going back to this initial call in Genesis chapter 12, is able to produce this this reconciling work, this salvific work, as it pertains to Abraham's sin and need and God's goodness and grace. Faith in the life of Abraham is counted to him as righteousness. This is clear from a a New Testament perspective. The quality of of his faith has not changed, but maybe now there is more of it than ever. As he is able to say to himself, oh, I see what you were, what you were doing. And I see what you were, I see what you were doing. I, I couldn't before, or maybe I didn't want to. But now, wow. Why? Why didn't I trust? Why didn't I trust you? Maybe you have asked that question before. Maybe you're you're asking it right now. It's certainly an, an indictment, right, on on our on our unbelief and our and our inability to to perfectly trust looking to the Lord confident that he will ultimately bring about his will plan and purpose but it's really interesting the way that this quickly draws us out of ourselves and the indictment that has been laid down on our own inability And the great appreciation that we are brought into as we consider God and the depths of his, of his love and his commitment. Right, what begins as an indictment that we feel the weight of and we say, why can I not trust? 
Right? Like, why can I not have, have the faith that my heart so desires? I mean, the Lord has displayed again and again and again and again his commitment. Why is this such a struggle? We feel the weight of it, don't we? And we feel the, feel the weight of it, but as we do, something really interesting happens in that we are drawn out of ourselves and we're drawn into this great rest that God calls us into as we realize that whereas we are, are oftentimes uncommitted, where we oftentimes fail in terms of commitment, God does not and God is not. There's a shift that takes place really quickly. And we begin to to look not so much at ourselves, but we begin to look at Him. And we look to to Him and and His trustworthiness as we are reminded that indeed He is faithful. And that we are able to rely on Him in and for every need, circumstance, and situation. And life... As well as in death. If Genesis 12 serves as an introduction of God's promise to make Abraham's family great for nations to be birthed through this one man, then certainly Genesis chapter 25 points readers towards the fulfillment of this promise, at least in part. All of this we know given the benefit that we have as we reflect on on the entire redemptive story and the canon completed before us. I loved loved Simon's Simon's prayer in the beginning, right? Just this acknowledgement, this gratitude that we have to the Lord in light of his preservation of his word, his speaking to his people, that we have it here. And And we can read it. This is not to be taken lightly. All that we consider as we connect Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 comes to a head in Jesus. As as he brings together a, a multitude of different types of people around the throne of God through his death in the place of, of sinners, through Abraham, the nations are being prepared. No, like literally they are being prepared, like they are being they're being created. Nations are being produced through the line of Abraham to, through Christ, take possession of the new heaven and the and the recreated earth, co-heirs with Jesus, as as they, as as we worship and enjoy him forever. Moses takes this opportunity in reflecting on the death of Abraham to highlight the nations that have been birthed just as God had promised. Just as God had promised all of those years earlier. This is the point. Are you ready for this? All the names that we read here in the beginning, all the names that we read at the end, what is the point? They lead us into this this point of supreme confidence that God keeps his word. That God keeps his word. Man, what an incredible source of comfort for you and I. Can we just take a breath for a moment? 
Like what an incredible source of comfort. These are sections of scripture that we oftentimes struggle with. Right, we struggle with genealogy, unless again your name is China Gowan, at which point you like just murder it, right? You just you just kill it. We don't understand their purpose a lot of times. We don't understand their place in the story. And so as we practice various read-throughs throughout the year, perhaps you're engaged in one right now, you're working through like these, these early books of the Bible and your read-through over the course of 2019. You come to the genealogy section and you go, nope, not today. <laughs> right? It's a little bit confusing. Why is this here? It just seems to kind of like break up the story when in actuality the the exact opposite is true. It serves to carry the story along while reminding us of the work of the Lord. In this case, keeping his word, fulfilling his promise. How important is this understanding for your life? How important is this understanding for the church? How many times have we questioned the sufficiency of the word? Right? It's reliability and God's commitment to it. Maybe we wouldn't say it exactly like that because that's really harsh. Right? But I think that there's this need that we be just brutally honest with ourselves. I had a great conversation with, with Jacqueline Eves and Max Smith this past week. We were just considering you know, what it looks like to live the Christian life. As we read through, there were points of conviction. Like for all of us around the table, we were just like, wow, man, that one, that one got me, <laughs> right? And we said in the time that we were together, like around, um, around the table, drinking coffee, because of course, right? That there's this need that the church, that we be really, really honest with ourselves, and if we're, if we're really, really honest about where we are and why we do what we do, then we come to this realization that there is this questioning of the reliability of God's word. Because at our core, now here's the question that I'm answering now. Why do we do this? Now we all do it, right? Like, we all do this. Why do we do it, though? Here's kind of the conclusion that I think that I've, I've come to as I've just turned this over in my own heart over the course of the, the past week. Right, we, we question the reliability of God's word because at our core, we are scared to death that he is just like we are. Right, that, he's, that he's just like we are. Often unfaithful, struggling with commitment, even with those that are, that are closest to us, unforgiving, right? All these things that that we wouldn't really want to spend a whole lot of time talking about in any other setting, perhaps. And maybe even here. Hurry up and move past this point, right? That's the first one, right? We're we're scared, I think, that God is is like we are, whereas his his word clearly paints this picture of a God who is is infinitely greater and holy than, than we are. That's one option. The other option is this. And so, so let's do a little bit of self-diagnosis for a moment. Is that where, is that where you are? The other option is, is that we, we elevate our perception of ourselves to say that we are just like he is. So on one hand, we say God is just like me. And on the other hand, we say, no, I'm just like him. 
One is like a, a, a devaluing of, of who God is, and one is an elevation of who we are. In the first, we are, we're honest about our tendencies, yet we are totally unable to differentiate between the fragile and the finite and the infinite and the holy. In the other, we are totally disillusioned and unable to see ourselves as we are. That was hard, wasn't it? It has been for me this week. Jen Wilkin, who is um, just a total boss, by the way. I don't know if any of you, if any of you read Jen. Check out my girl Jen. Like, she's legit. She writes in her book, None Like Him, the following. God is self-existent. He is self-sufficient, eternal. Immutable, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, sovereign, infinite, and incomprehensible. We are not. And that's a good thing. We are not, and and that's a good thing. Our limitations are by design. We were never meant to be God. But in the root of, of every sin and our rebellious desire is this possession of attributes that belong to God and to God alone. And so the question that we must ask ourselves as we again consider the life of Abraham serving as a testimony to the faithfulness and the reliability of God's word is, are we willing to go here? Like, are we willing to go here? Are we willing to explore the depths of our own depravity and our own need, our sin? If we are, then there is good news to hear. You ready for this? Right? That in, that in life and in death, Abraham's comforts can be our comfort. Right? That God is not like us, but he is committed to, hear this, making us like him. Only he doesn't stop there. He's committed not only to to making us like him. This is the process of sanctification that we we talk about as we lean into and and engage God in his word. As he works by the power of the gospel and the work of the spirit to bring us into conformity to the image of his son. This is what we are about. This is what we are pursuing. This is what we are desiring no matter what the cost. Conformity into the image of Jesus. Understanding that this produces great glory to the father. This is, this is our desire. God is committed to this work. If we are willing to, as our eyes are opened, embrace the reality of our indescribable need, there is good news. Right? That Christ's death is sufficient to, to save and to rescue of Abraham's life speaks of the reliability of God's word, then we are able to then cast our entire selves upon the sufficiency of the cross. Why? Because God's word is true. God is faithful to his word. And as a result, Christ Jesus' death in our place is able to bring about reconciled relationship With God, a God that that you and I are incapable of bringing about reconciled relationship with apart from the finished work of Christ. God's committed to this this work, 
right? Transforming us into the image of his son. Not only us, but it's, it's bigger than that. All of creation, holy and void of brokenness and rebellion. I think as our, as our lives begin to ebb to a, to a close, and then similar fashion as to what we observe from Abraham here, there is undoubtedly right, this, this focus on the future, right? what is to come about, what does eternity look like. God's word and a number of other really helpful resources serve to paint a beautiful picture for us of what this looks like. And so allow me to share with you an excerpt from, uh, from uh, the, the book of Revelation, as well as a quote from the, the, the great John Piper. And when she says this, beginning with the book of Revelation, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Listen to what he says here. I don't think this means that God picks us up and takes us to a new solar system. Though he certainly could if he wanted to. The hope of the prophet seems to be that this earth and and these heavens will be made new. God will renovate the whole thing. A kind of global rehab project. And everything futile and evil and painful will be done away with. Paul puts it like this in Romans chapter 8, verse 21. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the liberty of the glory of the children of God. The newness and the glory of the church. The children of God is primary and first, but then God promises That the glory of his people will demand a glorious creation to live in. So the fallen creation will obtain the very freedom from futility and evil and pain that the church is given. So God makes all things new. God makes all things new. He makes us new spiritually and morally. He makes us new physically. And then he makes the whole creation new so that our environment fits our perfected spirits and bodies. That's a picture. Right? That God's people cling to as we observe the brokenness in us. As we observe the brokenness around us. Confidence. Again, this is rooted in a confidence in the reliability of God's word. Here in Genesis 25, Moses is making the case that God's word is true. His family has been blessed, and now Abraham is preparing for sight. His genealogy serves to move us towards that end. This is Abraham's legacy. This is, his, this is his testimony. But we have to hear this before we move on. Okay, this is Abraham's legacy and this is, this is Abraham's testimony. We see it through these names that are mentioned. They serve to carry the story along while encouraging us to reflect back on the faithfulness of the Lord. This is Abraham's legacy. It's his testimony, but it's not ultimately about his legacy or testimony. But it's ultimately about God's. All of the benefits, right, that Abraham has experienced as the, war, as the Lord remains committed to his promise, that he remains, as he remains faithful 
We learn a lot about Abraham here. We have over the last 13 chapters. But more than we've learned about Abraham, we've learned about God. His genealogy here serves to move us towards that end. We see the the life of Abraham serving as a a testimony to the reliability of God's word. That's our our first part. But as we transition forward in the passage, we observe how the life of Abraham is a testimony to the goodness and generosity of God. I want us to look together at verse 5. Look with me there. It says in verse 5 that Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. Why? Well, we know based on our time together over the past few months as we've worked through this incredible book that that Isaac is in fact the child of the promise. He is the one by which the, the promises of the Lord will move forward. And as a result, Abraham gives all that he has. He leaves all that he has to Isaac. As we step back and we consider this from a New Testament perspective, again, we learn about who God is. Hear this, right? That, that for the children of God, that nothing is withheld, right? Now, what does that mean? Does that mean fat stacks, right, and big bank accounts for all of us in this life? Absolutely not. That is not what that means. Right? But it means, right, that in Christ Jesus, the promises of God are what? They are, they are yes, right, that we, that we place um, our hope, for this life and the next on him, confident that he is faithful. And again, that his word is, is reliable. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. We learned some things about Abraham here. We learn about his generosity, something that we're going to continue to unpack for just a, a few moments as we work our way through the remainder of this passage. But ultimately, again, what do we learn about the life and legacy of Abraham? Some really helpful things, but the life and legacy of Abraham served to teach us a lot about God. We have stories, we have legacies, right? We have history. Do Do our stories, do our testimonies serve to teach people not only some interesting things about us, but ultimately a lot of really amazing things about God? Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons... Of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. All these names that we, that we had just read through. He gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. Now, why did Abraham do this? And what does it tell us about who God is as he does? Let's say this, okay? That, that the generosity of Abraham is being drawn to the surface here. But again, it's not ultimately about Abraham, but it's ultimately about who? God, you're smart people. It's about God, right? And and so we learn that that God is is generous, right? That that the gospel, even now, has has worked this incredible work in the life of Abraham. And, And as a result, Abraham displays this incredible generosity that is ultimately designed to point us towards who, again, God is. We're a bit of a broken record at this point, but you guys are hopefully picking up the the pattern. Abraham was under no legal obligation to to give any gifts to anyone outside of Isaac. 
but he gives. We don't get a ton of information in this passage as to what that looks like. But we do know, based on things that we've read already, that Abraham was really wealthy. And like like gold and and silver. And so we would imagine that this was a part of the giving, right? That there's there's this generous posture and this generous spirit on display from this man who has been drastically transformed based on what we had seen earlier in the life of Abraham by the power of God and the work of the gospel. Not only that, but he looks out for the relational well-being of his children moving forward. It says in verse 6 that he gave them gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. Why in the world would Abraham do that? Why would he send his sons away? For what purpose? Well, Isaac is to take possession of the land, isn't he? Anybody in here have multiple children? Raise your hand. So I'm a little bit unfamiliar at this point with like sibling rivalry, okay? But I hear it's a thing. I think that there's a, a sense in which Abraham here is is guarding his his family, desiring what's good for for Isaac, but not only for Isaac moving forward, right? What happens if if the brothers hang around and they begin to see Isaac taking possession and the promise progressing? Why not us? Why not us? Why don't why don't we have this? Abraham can see it coming. Again, wise dude. He's been around for a long time. A long time. Right? He's familiar with the sin of the human heart as it begins to manifest itself in our relationships. And I think as a result, he says, listen, let's produce this degree of separation, right? You guys go live over here and Isaac, you stay, you stay here and hopefully this will ensure um, healthy relationships within the family moving forward. We continue on in verse 7. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Verse 8, Abraham breathed his last and he died in good old age. Man, I love the way that Moses records this here. An old man and full of years was gathered to his people. Verse 9, Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave. What cave? Well, the same cave that he had purchased just a few chapters earlier, where his wife Sarah laid, where he would lay. Isn't it interesting that Isaac and Ishmael are in this scene together? Maybe that served to inform some of the way that that I considered what we saw earlier on in the sending away to the east. It appears as though there is this, um, there is enough, uh, there is enough healthy relationship between these two brothers that they're able to come together for the, the funeral of their father. Again, we can we can maybe perhaps uh, presume a few things from the text, but there's no indication that this is an unhealthy gathering of the brothers. That there is any type of ill will, but perhaps maybe there was some type of. Um, some type of, 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 of racial, racial, uh, relational reconciliation there within the brothers as well. We're, we're, again, that is assuming some things, but we know that that's the, the work of the gospel, that the gospel produces that in us, even if other parties don't desire to enjoy that as well. And so we would imagine perhaps that, that Isaac is, is a part of that work. Regardless, we see that Abraham was buried with his wife Sarah in verse 10. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahiroi. 
we see here the gospel's work to produce certain qualities that point toward not only a legacy and testimony of grace and generosity from Abraham, but ultimately, again, as we have said on multiple occasions this morning, God. The distinctness of Isaac is emphasized in verse 5. The generosity of of Abraham to his other sons is emphasized in verse 6. We can certainly say that Abraham's faith his practice and his legacy is shaped as he seeks to care for his sons even after his death. Because Abraham's final acts are a reflection of God and evidences of his goodness and patient provision in the life of a man we have seen come a long way since these scenes of Denying his wife. If this is true, then Abraham's generosity drives us somewhere. Right? It leads us somewhere. And so the question is where? Where do we begin to, to land on this passage? Where are we being driven towards? What are we being encouraged towards? If this is true, then Abraham's generosity drives us toward a celebration of grace. A celebration of of grace, perhaps serving to shape our own understanding of the testimony being written with our lives. Church, let's take a moment to reflect on the generosity of God to you and I. We'll go to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5. We've been there already this morning, but we'll revisit. Paul writes of our justification in Christ and his word that secures safety for otherwise hopeless people as he pens. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. How? How are we to have peace with God? Oh, the hope of the gospel. (laughs) The hope of the gospel through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by what? Works? No, faith. Into this grace in which we stand as we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. As sinners, our only hope of justification before a holy God is grace through faith in the work of Jesus. This is what? Generosity. This is This is the generosity of God who sustains those who progress forward in this life. In open rebellion to his rule, he keeps you alive. This is grace. This is generosity. And it is truly amazing. Yet his generosity expands infinitely wider and infinitely deeper as we are made to see the refusal of God to withhold his only son from us in the midst of our rebellion. Not only does Abraham practice incredible, God-glorifying generosity, but he seeks to ensure peace for his family as he passes on. Generosity. Consideration of, of life beyond even his, his own. Undoubtedly, as we, as we discussed earlier, perhaps an, an eye on, on eternity, an, an eye on the future, although perhaps uh, I think we can certainly say it's cloudy as to what that looks like from Abraham's perspective. We are a bit more clear on this side of things, but, but we observe from beginning to end this trustworthy nature of the Lord, a, a healthy reflection on life, 
and a gospel-informed response to situations that arise. God is this. Therefore, the gospel, as we, as we look to Christ in faith, which is what Abraham is doing here, although he couldn't have worded it exactly like that, we can. We know what that ultimately is. As we look to Christ in faith, these qualities are, are produced and they are shaped in us. And so we begin with this indictment of a failure to trust. Right, that's where we begin earlier on. We, we explore the depths of our own hearts and we recognize our, our inability at times and our unwillingness to trust the Lord. We see his patience and his, and his faithfulness. We see him, him calling us into right, deeper consideration of his grace as it plays itself out right, over the course of, of human history that serves to produce within us an increased confidence and a greater ability to trust. If we have difficulty trusting, what do we do? Right, if you're here and you're having difficulty trusting, what do you, what do, you do? You, you go to God's word because it's trustworthy and it's, and it's true and we familiarize ourselves with the faithfulness of the Lord, these tales being told. Over and over and over. This is the instruction of God for his people to write these things on your eyelids and your doorposts, right? To, to remember them, to consider them, to rest in them. All of this serves to produce qualities in us that magnify the goodness of the Lord. Generosity, care, a desire for, for relational reconciliation and consideration of this life even beyond ourselves. And so let's let's close with this. How do we come to the table? What's the posture of our hearts as we come to the table? What questions are we asking ourselves as we come to the table? What prayers are we offering to the Lord as we come to the table? Let us come to the table desiring greater rest in the trustworthiness of God. Right? Because that is um that's like uh, getting the top button right on your shirt. Right? You begin there, and you, you fall there, and everything else just it lines up right. right? We've got to, to trust in the reliability of the word of the Lord. Any other work extending out from our faith in him must be shaped by this inexhaustible truth, that God's word in its entirety can be trusted. This confidence requires us to turn from our sin and to turn toward Christ. Belief that he can be trusted. Belief that the cross is sufficient for our forgiveness. Belief that Jesus is more enjoyable than things of this world. Belief that he will receive us through Christ. Belief that he has loved us and will continue to do so in Christ. Belief that he will guide us and strengthen us. That he will not forsake us ever. We close here. That God is trustworthy. Genesis 25. God is trustworthy. This is the confidence of Abraham and this is the confidence of you and I as we come to the table this morning and we, we see and we are reminded yet again of the extent to which God is trustworthy. We rest in it. We look to it. And we worship. We worship in response. Hey, let's pray together. Lord, thank you.